Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 24. We'll pick up at verse 9 and look at, at verses 9 through 14. Matthew chapter 24. I'll read for a context from verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come to study your word now, we pray for the help of your Spirit. And, oh Lord, may he who inspired Matthew as he wrote these words come now and lead us, that we might be able to understand them and that we might be able to apply them. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by the time we get to verse 9, we have to understand that the disciples are reeling. Their whole world has been thrown into confusion by what Jesus said in verse 2. And now you understand they're, they're really here on the Mount of Olives in a position in which they don't really know which way is up anymore. They thought they knew who Jesus was. They thought they knew how these last days in Jerusalem were going to go. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, as Peter had wonderfully confessed at Caesarea Philippi, a conviction that had been only reinforced by Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem seated on that donkey's colt in clear fulfillment of messianic prophecy, a conviction that had even more recently been strengthened by how they had watched Jesus really perform a, a kingly defeat of his opponents in the debate in the temple. By the time we get to verse 36 of chapter 23, the disciples are certain that they know who Jesus is and what He is going to do. They are certain that they are on the verge of, of Jesus launching an all-out assault on His enemies and on the enemies of His people. And as the true Son of David, re-establishing Jerusalem 
as the center of a reestablished promised land in Palestine. By the time Jesus finishes his debates with the opponents in the temple, with the religious rulers of the temple, the disciples are certain that here in Jesus, all the promises that were given to to Abraham are now literally going to come true. And that, in part, is what lies behind the comment that they make in verse 1. Matthew just tells us very simply that the disciples point out to Jesus the, the buildings of the temple. The scene is they are they're done debating, they're walking through the temple courts, and and they make this idle comment. Mark records the comment for us. One of the disciples said to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings, right? And and we've said there's a sense in which that really is just a throwaway comment, like like making a comment on, on the weather, something that's just intended to break the silence, like walking into church this morning and saying, what about that rain? That's not a substantial comment, right? Everybody knows it's raining, but it's a way of breaking the silence and starting a conversation. And there's a sense in which that's all the disciples were doing. The the buildings of the temple were so obviously magnificent that it didn't really bear talking about. You remember, we we heard from Josephus three, four weeks ago, how he described the the temple as as being so clad in brilliantly white stone that that from a distance it looked like a snow-capped mountain. We're saying the great plates of gold that, that gilded its walls made it shine with the radiance of the sun. It was clearly a magnificent building. That didn't need to be said. It didn't need to be pointed out. It was an idle comment. But underneath it, I think there is this messianic hopefulness. They've just seen Jesus overturn the tables of the money changers. They've watched Him disrupt the business of the pigeon merchants. They've just watched Him tackle directly the corrupt leadership of the temple. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that that as they walk through the temple on cloud nine, following Jesus, anticipating what's about to happen, they're thinking, if, if, this, is, if this is now a, a glorious edifice, even though it has been corrupted by all this leadership, even though it has been twisted and and abused, if this temple just in its structure is this glorious, then imagine what it will be when Jesus reveals Himself as that greater David, and He comes and He he cleanses and reestablishes it as the center of true godly biblical piety. If it's this great with all of its corruption, imagine what it will be when Jesus reveals His glory as the Messiah. After all, the temple was the focal point of Old Testament piety and devotion, and so it followed, or it seemed to follow, that the temple would be in some way the focal point of the work of the Redeemer. 
But what Jesus said to them in response in verse 2 turns all of that on its head. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, for as glorious as this is, you have to understand the day is coming when all of it will be raised to the ground and and nothing will be left. And the disciples just don't know what to do with that. It's so outside of their understanding. It's so outside of their theology of the Messiah. It's so outside of their covenantal expectation. It it shakes them to their very cores. It stuns them. We've noted how Jesus says this apparently in the temple courts and and it seems like they walk through the rest of it down through the Kidron Valley and then up onto the Mount of Olives and only then have they managed to get it together enough that they're able to ask Jesus for more information. It, It stunned them. It left them reeling. They just could not comprehend what Jesus had just said. And so now on the Mount of Olives, finally having gathered themselves a a little. They they asked Jesus, verse 3, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Do you understand? They, They thought this was the close of the age. They thought that Jesus had come to bring the age of sin to a close, to crush sin under His feet as that promised son of Eve and establish his kingdom, but the prediction of the destruction of the temple seemed to indicate that there was still more to come, that somehow sin would continue and the enemies of God would continue, and so they don't know what to make of it. But notice how Jesus answers them. He he answers them carefully. He answers them tenderly. And in fact, he doesn't answer the question they asked. He answers the question they should have asked. Jesus understands how much this has rocked them, and so he breaks their question down. And he really answers it in, in two parts. He doesn't really get to the substance until much later. He'll get there, verse 36. He'll begin to to tell them about what this means about His coming, about the end of the age. He will go on and and fill in the details that they are asking for, but not yet. First of all, Jesus knowing that that before He answers their question, what they really need is something else. He, 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 He talks to them and He prepares them for what life will be like before He returns to bring all things to their glorious conclusion. And so we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus begins by preparing His disciples for the reality that after His departure from them, the world is going to look just the same. There's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be wars and the rumors of wars. There's going to be false religions. There's going to be charismatic false prophets. It will look like Jesus was no Savior at all because it will look like nothing has changed. Like the world is just going on like it has always been 
going on. And Jesus says to them, you understand, when you see this, it will be so easy for you to be led astray because it will seem like I haven't done anything at all. But now Jesus continues on in that theme and he, he narrows in. And he continues on that theme and, and he, he narrows in and he says, first of all, he had said, this is going to be the situation of the general world. But now he narrows in and he says, for you specifically, my disciples, you have to understand that what lies in store for you is a life of suffering. Now, this is totally contrary to what they were expecting. Do you remember when we began looking at this two weeks ago, we saw how the disciples still think that, that following Jesus is going to bring them entitlement and comfort. Do you remember we said that that's what lies behind Peter's rebuke of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and tried and, and killed and rise again on the third day. And Peter just can't comprehend that, and so he rebukes Jesus. No, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I just said it. And you commended me for saying it. And that means that we're going to go and it's going to be great and there's going to be a new kingdom and there's going to be privilege and prestige and, and honor awaiting for us. It's what lies under James and John sending their mother to go and ask Jesus for the positions at his right and left hand. They're about to go into Jerusalem. And so they're like, this is it. Jesus is here to sit on his throne. We want to make sure that, that we are his chief courtiers. It's what will go on to lie behind Peter taking out his sword and cutting off the servant's ear when Jesus is arrested. This idea that somehow, some way, Jesus is about to launch this militaristic attack in Jerusalem. They struggle with this idea. And all the more as they've been approaching Jerusalem and the, the reckoning that they supposed was about to take place, they, they thought that that now was the time when they would get their reward. But here Jesus warns them that the reality is that in the near future, they will see that allegiance with him won't be the avenue to health and wealth and prosperity. But instead, it will result in hatred and opposition and persecution. Jesus says to them, following me will not be the path to thrones and riches and, and power, but instead it will be the road to hardship and tribulation. Now, Jesus has just warned his disciples that they will continue to face the general suffering of a, of a world trapped in sin, that, that they will continue to share in the general hardships of of life with all people, that the effects of his defeat of sin will not be immediately apparent. And for a time, we will still have to live with the difficulties of life living in a world that has been twisted and corrupted by sin. But here, Jesus now turns and he says to his disciples specifically, you won't only have to face these general hardships but there is a special suffering that is coming for you. There is a special hardship that is coming for you, not in spite of the fact that you are Christians, but precisely because you are Christians. 
Instead of union with Christ being a path to ease and prosperity, Jesus says here that union with Him is actually that road to greater suffering. Look at what He says in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In these last days, those who would be the disciples of Jesus must expect special trouble, not because of what they do, but simply because of who they are. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. This is a running theme in the New Testament. It's in John 15 that we perhaps find the classic statement, the classic warning that Jesus gives to His disciples. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they also will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. James, in his letter, warns us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. But it is vital to see that it works the other way around as well. To become friends of God through Jesus Christ is to make an enemy out of the world. And as Jesus says in verse 9, and as he elaborates there in John 15, they hate us not because of what we do, they hate us because they hate Him, and we are joined to Him. Now, the hatred of Christ is, I think, the most illogical thing in the world. All sin is illogical, but perhaps nothing is more illogical than the hatred of Christ. But here is sinful humanity dead in its transgressions and sins alienated from God and subject to the just and righteous and terrible wrath of God. But here is sinful humanity, completely unsatisfied by its idols, drinking from broken cisterns, as Jeremiah said. Sinful humanity who cannot find a bomb rich enough in this life to cover the sore of their sin, who are facing an eternity subject to the wrath of God. And here is Christ, Christ who came, who warned of the judgment to come, but who said, believe in me and you will have everlasting life. Here is Christ who came to the, to the woman at the well and, and through her to all humanity and said that our, our running after the things of this world will never, ever satisfy us, but trusting in Him will produce a well of living water that will swell up inside us and satisfy us forevermore. 
It is Christ who came in the raising of Lazarus and showed that He is the one with power over death and held out that promise saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Here is Jesus who comes and says, whosoever without distinction or qualification believes in Him will not face the eternal death of sin, but will be blessed with new life, with true life, with eternal life. That is, they will be blessed with life forever with the God to whom they are alienated in their sin. Reconciliation with God. Here is Christ who came as that great physician diagnosing our sickness and saying that He Himself is the remedy and freely offered Himself as that remedy to anyone and everyone, requiring only that they have faith in Him, that they put their trust in Him, that they give Him their uh, allegiance. That's it. Here is a humanity dead in their transgressions and sins, and here is Jesus who says, come and I will give you life if only you believe. But yet there are many who hate Him. Throughout His ministry, there were many who sought to silence Him. Even now, the religious authorities are, are, are plotting to lynch Jesus. They hate Him to the point of crucifying Him. That crowd will be filled with so much hatred for Jesus that as they behold their God standing before them, veiled in human flesh, come as that free remedy for their sin, they will instead cry out, crucify Him. The hatred of Jesus is illogical. It is the most illogical thing in the world. Without a cause, his enemies hate Him. And the same is still true. Christianity goes out into the world, and it stands among religions, and it doesn't say, like the rest of them do, be better and you will live. The gospel stands amongst all these other belief systems, and it doesn't say, like they do, do better and you will be reconciled to God. The gospel comes and it proclaims, you sinner, you cannot do anything to save yourself, but Christ has done it all. And so it invites all who hear, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. It says, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. And yet that free offer of the gospel, that gospel of Christ freely offered is so often met with hostility and resentment and, and hatred, so determined are people trapped in their sin to be their own little gods that they will fight literally to the death with King Jesus to keep hold of their tiny little kingdoms. 
And it's that hatred for Jesus that fuels opposition, the opposition that Christians are called to face. You understand the world does not hate us because of what we do. It hates us because of who we are. Or perhaps more precisely, it hates us because of whose we are. It hates us because we love the Christ that they hate. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so as Jesus says this to his disciples, solemn and serious as it is, he says to them, he says to us, he says, listen, this will happen. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. He says, listen, this, this persecution, it will, it will separate the wheat from the chaff. It will separate the goats from the sheep because those who are here just for the externals will fall away. They will not bear up under the weight of this. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says, listen, this persecution is coming. This tribulation is coming. You will, you will face it if you're my disciples. These disciples faced it just within a few years. These men would be run through by swords because of their commitment to Christ. They would be boiled in oil because of their commitment to Christ. They would be crucified upside down because of their commitment to Christ. They would be exiled because of their commitment to Christ. And it's been the same for every generation of Christians that's ever come. It's the same for us. Now, thankfully, nobody is threatening to boil me in oil, but it's there. It's more subtle, but it's there. Your family members who distance themselves from you because of your commitment to Christ. The work associates who, who look at you out of the side of their eyes because of your commitment to Christ. The growing rhetoric that is in our nation as, as, as biblical morality yields to a resurgence of paganism. We find ourselves ostracized and opposed and hated. We don't yet face violence. We don't yet face the violence that our brethren in Somalia or parts of Kenya face. We don't face what our brethren in North Korea face but we face it. There are those who hate us because we love Jesus. But here Christ comes to us and He says to us, do not be surprised by this. Do not be surprised that the world is against you. Indeed, as Jesus said when He began this in, in verse 4, He is he is saying these things to make sure that no one leads us astray. He wants us to be forewarned so that we can be forearmed, so that we can expect this and not be caught off guard by it. If Jesus hadn't told us that these things would be so, then again, just like in verses 4 through 8, 
we might be tempted to take this as evidence that the kingdom of Christ has failed. We cited two weeks ago the testimony of the men on the road to Emmaus. I think it fits here. You remember their tragic statement as Jesus speaks with them as they walk along that road and, and he asks them about what they are talking about and they say, are you, are you the only one who has not heard what happened in Jerusalem? About Jesus of Nazareth, the man we thought was going to be the Redeemer. But not anymore. He's dead. And the dead man can't be the Savior. It, it would seem that the kingdom had failed. Or as the disciples go on and as they preach this good news and, and all that is, all that they face, all that we face is seemingly a, an ever-increasingly intense hatred of the world, we might think, how can Jesus really be the Savior if, if this is how people react to Him? How can He be the King of kings if the kings of this world come and try to crush and destroy His church? If Jesus hadn't warned us, we might have thought that this is proof that Jesus isn't actually the Savior that He claimed to be. That's what is happening. That's what is happening when He, in verse 12, when He says about the love of many that are growing cold. As their faith hits this opposition, they don't know what to do with it, and so they walk away from Jesus. But here Jesus tells us that this is the way it will be. To follow Him is to follow in His footsteps. It is to bear His reproach. A servant, as He said in John 15, is not greater than His Master. If they hated Jesus, then we have no right to expect anything else. And this foreknowledge gives us confidence. It gives us steadfastness. We do not worry or fret or panic when the world turns against us, but we press on. We press on in love for Christ and His people, in love even for those who hate us and seek to do us harm. We press on, enduring to the end, confident in the knowledge that one day we will see the kingdom of Christ in all of its glorious fullness, and we will receive the peace and the joy of our salvation in all of its fullness. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4 talking about the difficulties of life in a fallen world, talking about facing this opposition. He says, we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. John Bunyan, the Puritan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was imprisoned for 12 years because of his devotion to Christ. His wife was impoverished as her husband was thrown into Bedford jail, became essentially a he knew what it was to face the hatred of the world because of his commitment to Christ, but yet he wrote these words. He says, it is said that in some countries trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no 
winter there. What Jesus is saying here is not simply a call to grin and bear it. It is a call to understand that while life here and now will be hard and difficult, while this winter may at times be bleak and cold and seemingly hopeless, it is how God is preparing us to bear beautiful fruit. It is how God is preparing us to lay hold of the glories that are stored up for us in, in heaven. Right? That's what Jesus means when He says in, in short in verse 13 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. What He is saying is if we endure this tribulation, if we don't fall away, if we are not crushed, if we aren't led astray, if we endure to the end, and we will be brought up into that eternal weight of glory, the magnificence of, of which is such that it makes our sufferings here look but a light and momentary affliction, transient, passing on. A day is coming when we will be released from the difficulties of this life. And either through death or through the return of our Lord, we will shrug off all the hardships and the difficulties of life in a sin-fallen world, and we will lay hold of the fullness of our salvation, and everything else will fade away. And you understand, that is why it is so important for us that we come to the Lord's table this morning. As we come and, and gather around this table, as we come and, and eat this supper together, we do so to intentionally remember that hope of the gospel, to intentionally remember the union and the communion that we have with God now, really, truly, through Jesus Christ, and that we will see fulfilled when Christ returns. In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we come to this table this morning, this is a table that is prepared, as Psalm 23 says, this is a table that God has furnished for us in the presence of our enemies. And we sit here and we and we eat this bread, and we drink this cup, and we remember that through the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus, we enter into this great new covenant reality in which all of our sins are forgiven, and we are, we are reunited to God. In fact, more than that, as Paul says, as we come to this table this morning, we don't just come to remember, we come to proclaim that gospel 
by eating this bread and drinking this cup, we are making a public profession of our faith in Christ, a statement that Jesus is ours and we are His. By eating this bread and drinking this cup, we are, we are taking part in an act of defiance. We are saying to this world that hates us, in the face of their threats and intimidations, we eat this bread, we drink this cup, declaring that despite their hatred and their threats and their oppositions, we are united to God through the death of Christ. This is who we are. This is our identity, and we will not, we cannot change. But we also proclaim it to one another. It is our practice here to hold the elements until all have been served so that we can eat this bread and drink this cup in unison as a statement of our fundamental unity to encourage one another that we are not alone as we face this world that we are united together in our shared union with Christ, that we stand with and for one another in the face of trial and temptation. Now, what that means is that if you're here this morning and you are not a professing Christian, if you're not a member in good standing in an evangelical church, if you do not yet profess faith in Christ, then we would ask you to let these elements pass you by. What we do here is solemn and serious, so solemn and serious that the apostle would go on in 1 Corinthians 11 to say that for you to eat this bread and drink this cup would be for you to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But understand what is symbolized here. See here the gospel made visible. See here the body of Christ broken. See here the blood of Christ spilt, and see that coming to Jesus will cost you everything, but what you gain is far, far greater. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, O oh Lord, we thank You that in Your grace You brought us out of our sin, and You brought us to Yourself. In Christ, You have lavished upon us every blessing in the heavenly places. That as Paul writes in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, if there's a good thing for God to give us, it is ours in Christ. Oh Lord, teach us that. Teach us it now. Bless this bread and this cup. We thank You for these elements. And we pray that You would sanctify them to a holy use, that they would be a means of grace to us, that our faith would be strengthened, our joy deepened, and that we would press on in the knowledge of the gospel, willing to bear the reproach of this world. Lord, bless Your people as we are gathered here, we pray for Jesus' sake.